treated to some excellent music, some Christ-exalting music this morning. But as you've been listening to that music, most of us probably aren't even aware or even considering the acoustics of the room that we find ourselves in. Probably none of you thought of that, except maybe Greg at the sound booth. But when, when the piano is played this morning, or the other instruments, the sound goes from the piano and begins to bounce off the walls that are here. And you may not even notice that that's happening, but that's called reverberation. And if the acoustics are right, if they're set right in a room, then the sound will bounce off the walls and reverberate for several seconds, and it'll actually enhance the experience of listening to the music. And that happens depending on the room for maybe just a, a fraction of a second or maybe several seconds or even longer, and then eventually the sound grows softer and it stops reverberating and you can't even hear it off the walls anymore. And that time that it takes for a sound wave to go from being heard as it's reverberating, from its, when it's initially introduced into the room by playing the piano or the guitar or the drums or whatever, the, the time that it takes from it being introduced into the room to the point where you can't hear it anymore, where it drops 60 decibels, it's actually a technical number to it, that's called the reverberation time. And that concept of reverberation time is really important when it comes to concert halls, when you're listening to a symphony orchestra play or a choir sing. It's significant in how the room is set up and in the experience of listening to the music. As I was reading about this online, the most reverberant space in the world, you may be curious to know, is a Scottish oil tank that used to house 5.6 million gallons of shipping oil. And now it's empty, and I listened to a sound clip of someone firing a blank on a pistol in this oil tank, and you could hear the sound just reverberating off of the steel walls and the metal walls for a long time. I think it was up to a minute that you could hear the sound going off of the walls. Now, reverberation is different from an echo. You can get those confused. An echo is when sound bounces off of the wall once and then dissipates. But a reverberation will continue to bounce around and influence the hearing of the audience members for a while if it's set up right. That can be an amazing experience. Now I want you to think this morning of the resurrection as a reverberation. It's not an echo. It's a reverberation. Something happened 2,000 years ago that is still having dramatic and influential and powerful effects on us today. But with the resurrection, there's no limit. There's no reverberation time where the effects begin to wane, begin to grow softer. They won't fade away. With the resurrection, the reverberation continues and will continue to the end of time. The resurrection is the climax of world history, and we're here this morning to celebrate the effects of the resurrection on us today. So open your Bibles to Mark 16. We're going to see five reverberations of the resurrection that shape our lives today. Five reverberations of the resurrection that shape our lives today. Now, Mark 16 is probably the most unusual resurrection account. If you're just picking a resurrection text, you don't normally go to Mark 16, as you'll see this morning. 
But I'm delighted that we're ending our study of Mark on Resurrection Sunday by looking at this short account of the resurrection of Christ, because it's powerful and there's a lot here for us to understand about the effects of the resurrection. So the first one of those reverberations is confidence. It reverberates into our lives today with confidence. So as is always the case when you're studying the Gospels, we divide these passages up into sections so that we can study them individually, but it's always the case that you're jumping into the middle of something when you read one of these stories, and that's the case this morning. Look at chapter 16 and verse 1. When the Sabbath was past, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. So, Jesus was crucified on Friday afternoon, and back in chapter 15, if you go read that this afternoon, you find a man named Joseph of Arimathea, a very wealthy man who asks for the body of Jesus, and he's granted the body of Jesus, and he takes his body as quickly as he can, and before sundown on Friday, he puts his body, the body of Jesus, into a family grave. And so after sundown on Friday, the Sabbath had officially begun, and so no work could be done. And so they couldn't go and get spices, and they couldn't do some of the work that needed to be done with the body of Jesus. And so the Sabbath would have passed on Saturday evening, and so verse 1 actually takes place on Saturday evening after sundown. The women go out to buy spices. Their intention is to place these spices on the body of Jesus in the tomb. Apparently, there wasn't time to do this on Friday because they had to get him in the tomb before sundown on Friday evening. And so they go and plan to do this. Now, why? Why spices? Well, it's not like what the Egyptians did in trying to preserve the body for a long period of time. This was mainly about keeping the stench of the body as it decayed from being overwhelming. Now, the women do this, interestingly enough. The fact that they do this shows that they're not expecting a resurrection at all. That's probably the furthest thing from their minds. They're doing what normally would have been done. And so it wouldn't make sense to go to the tomb after dark on Saturday when they buy the spices. And so they sleep Saturday night and they wait until it starts to get light on Sunday morning. And then they head out. Look at verse 2. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. Now, it's interesting that Mark makes a note here that the sun had risen. There's light enough for them to make sure that they go to the right tomb. They didn't end up at the wrong one. They went to the right tomb. And as they're headed there, a concern develops. And it's maybe just popped into their heads as they're walking along. Look at verse 3. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? They start to think about this. Clearly, this was a large stone, and three women would not have been able to move the stone to get access to the tomb. And so they begin to think about this problem, and maybe they're trying to imagine what they can do to address this problem as they get to the tomb. But as they approach, they see that the stone has already been moved from the front of the tomb. Look at verse 4. And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. Mark tells us it was very large. It was a great stone. Now, as you get to this point, you know the rest of the story, and so you know why the stone has been rolled away, but they would not have known any different at this point in the story. They would just have probably thought, that's interesting. Someone else has maybe already accessed the body of Jesus or already been in. 
The stone's been moved. That's great. Now we can get into the tomb. They wouldn't have been expecting anything unusual at this point. Now, as you read these first four verses, it seems pretty normal. If you don't know the rest of the story, then this seems pretty, pretty much like nothing unusual has happened. But what we do have here in these first four verses are important details about this account. And they help us to understand that this account of the resurrection is historically accurate. It's verifiable. This really happened. What we're about to read took place in time and space, and there were people who saw it, and they attested to it later on. Let me just remind you that these women weren't mentioned at all in the Gospel of Mark until chapter 15, and all of a sudden, they seem to be playing a prominent role in the story. They're there in verse 40 of chapter 15, looking on at the death of Jesus. They see him on the cross, and they watch him die. They watch him pass from this life and give up the ghost. And then, when he's placed in the tomb, look at verse 47, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. They watched him be taken down from the cross and placed in the tomb, and they saw exactly where he had been placed and which tomb it was. And here they make their way to that tomb on Sunday morning, and they know where they're going. They know the right tomb. They're witnesses of this whole thing. They see it. Now, it's interesting here. Let me just remind you that during this time, the testimony of women would not have counted as much as the testimony of men. Wouldn't have been given as much weight. And so it makes no sense for this account of the resurrection to be made up later on and for someone to write it with women as the first ones that realized he'd been raised from the dead. You wouldn't have fabricated it and put it this way. You just wouldn't have done that would have immediately cast doubt on it. And so there's, there's something to the reality of what's happening here. This is an accurate testimony to what happened on that Sunday morning 2,000 years ago. There have been all sorts of theories over the years to tr- in the, of the gospel accounts and how the gospel accounts explain the resurrection. There's been all sorts of theories to try to keep Jesus in the grave, to try to make it seem like this guy didn't really rise from the dead. But none of those attempted explanations can do justice to the historical accuracies of the gospel accounts. And they can't do justice to the the way the rest of the New Testament talks about this. There are hundreds and hundreds of witnesses of what happened here, of Christ in his body being raised from the dead after the fact. People saw him. People interacted with him. It wasn't a hallucination. It was something that really took place and really happened. Now, why have there been so many attacks on this portion of the Bible, on the resurrection? Because if the resurrection falls, the rest of our faith falls along with it. In many ways, this is the centerpiece. Paul pointed this out in 1 Corinthians 15. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who've fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, if Christ has not been raised, we are of all people most to be pitied. What are you even doing here this morning? 
what am I doing here? Trying to teach these things and explain these things to you. But if the resurrection stands as true, if these accounts in the Gospels are accurate and they tell the truth about what happened, then everything about our desires, our dreams, our hopes, our actions, our joys, and our eternal destinies changes. And there's no middle ground here. That's what's so crazy. Either Jesus rose from the dead or he didn't. You can't sort of hem and haw on this one and come to a sort of compromise with this. He either started breathing and came out of that tomb or he didn't. And it's a fabrication. And these people were hallucinating and everyone lied about the whole thing. And these historical accounts are made up. The most confusing and inconsistent lifestyle is one which verbally affirms the resurrection, but then doesn't live like it's true. If you really believe that Jesus never rose from the dead, then have the integrity to live like it. But if you say that you believe that he started breathing after dying three days earlier, if that really happened in time and space by the power of God on a Sunday morning 2,000 years ago, if you really believe that that happened, then have the integrity to live like it. And live as if that is true. And that will change everything and shape everything. And so this account gives us confidence that these things happened. And you can live like it, you can live this out because of our second reverberation. Victory. Confidence reverberates down through the years to us that we can base our lives on this account. And we can base our lives on this account because of the victory that comes to us through the work of Jesus. One author said that the stone was not rolled away to let Jesus or to, to let the to let Jesus out, but so that the women could actually get into the tomb. And I think you find that here in verse five. That's exactly what they do. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. So keep in mind here that Jesus would have been buried in a family tomb in a hill on the hillside, uh, pretty close to Jerusalem, just outside of Jerusalem, would have been cut into the rock there, the limestone rock on the hillside, and it would have been a cave system with multiple chambers in it, and there would have been shelves in these different chambers. So Jesus' body was placed on one of those shelves when he died on Friday. And so these women enter the cave system expecting to go to the place where they saw Jesus put on Friday afternoon. But when they duck down into the cave, something very different awaits them. This young man here, the other gospels present him as an angel, and clearly I think that's what he is. He's dressed in white, just like Jesus was radiant in white clothing at his transfiguration. This young man sitting there dressed in white. Now, try to put yourselves in the shoes of these women here. I don't know if, if you find graveyards creepy at all, but entering a cave system where you know dead bodies have been placed early in the morning when it's still somewhat dark, but light is coming, and expect to find a body there, and instead you find an angel sitting in the, in the grave, in the cave system, if that were to happen to, to me, that would bring no small amount of emotional distress to me. 
That would be a shocking thing to discover there. And that's exactly what happens. Mark states it so simply there. They were alarmed. Yeah, I guess they were (laughs) alarmed. In verse 6, the angel responds, and he said to them, do not be alarmed. Now, it's very common to be alarmed in the presence of angels. I mean, you see this throughout Scripture. It's very common to be alarmed, to be distressed in the divine presence. But it's also very common when God is speaking to his people, when they are overwhelmed by his presence, it's very common for he or his angels to say, don't fear, don't be alarmed. And that's what the angel does here. But pay careful attention to the words, the news that the angel gives to these women as they're distressed over his appearance here. Look at verse 6. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Now, the angel's words make sure that they identify the body they are seeking with the one who's been the main subject of the Gospel of Mark. Jesus of Nazareth. You seek Jesus of Nazareth. This is the guy this whole gospel has been talking about. This is not someone different that you're looking for. It's the guy you've been reading about. I mean, this is the way that Jesus has been named several times in this gospel. In Mark 10, the blind man identifies Jesus as Jesus of Nazareth. In Mark 14, the servant girl Remember, outside the high priest's house when she is accusing Peter of being with Jesus of Nazareth? So people that aren't even a part of the disciples know him as this designation. It's very common for him to be called this. So the angel says, this is the guy that that you've been learning about, that you've been following, that you've been seeking. And he also points out that the one that you are seeking is the very one who has been crucified. There's no doubt about it. The guy you're looking for was on the cross three days ago, and you watched him die. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. Now keep in mind what we've learned about crucifixion. Crucifixion was the ultimate act of degradation and dehumanization. Those who were crucified were outcasts of society. They'd essentially been erased from memory. You didn't honor people who had died on a cross. Most of the time, they didn't even get the honor, the dignity of a a proper burial. Jesus himself on the cross felt like he had been forsaken by God. Remember his cry of dereliction on the cross? The point is, the people who were crucified were defeated. But death and shame here were not the final words. He was crucified, the angel says, but in one word in Greek, I know it's three in your Bible, he is risen, but it's one word in Greek, everything changes. Death has been defeated Victory has been won. Death can no longer hold him. And this has powerful, practical ramifications for our lives today in so many ways. It seems at present that death has won in our lives. We're all going to die physically. Something is going to overtake my physical body at some point Something is going to overtake your physical body at some point. It may be cancer, maybe heart disease, 
and maybe anything else, but you will die physically. And it seems at present like death has won. But when it seems like death has won, lift your eyes up above your present experience and look to the empty tomb where one word was said and everything changes. The victory is sure for us because of what happens here. And that's exactly what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Death has come because of sin, but victory has come through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it's because of that victory that we receive our third reverberation, which is grace. So we have confidence, we have victory over death and over sin, but we also receive grace as a reverberation of what happens here in the empty tomb. Of course, you remember, if you've been with us in Mark or if you've even read Mark, that when Jesus was arrested, all of his disciples fled. And then you remember shortly after that, Peter denied him three times as Jesus was being tried before the high priest Peter was being tried before a servant girl and before some soldiers in the courtyard of the high priest. The disciples had abandoned him in his hour of greatest need. They had left. They had fled. And I can't imagine what they were going through on Friday night and on Saturday all day. I mean, the Bible doesn't specifically tell us, but can you imagine the guilt and the fear that they were experiencing, the heartache that they felt on Friday and on Saturday. But the angel here has a very specific command for these women. And this is the command that brings grace. Look at verse 7. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. Think about this for a second. Jesus died to pay the penalty for Peter's denial in the courtyard, that he even knew Jesus. Peter deserved the wrath of God for his sin, and Jesus took that punishment for that very sin on himself, on the cross, and paid for that sin. And then the resurrection comes along, and it is the confirmation that God has accepted the sacrifice of Jesus for that sin. And that death has been defeated. And sin no longer has a hold and has power over you at all. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 4. I'm going to read you a little bit of a section here. He's talking about Abraham and how Abraham was justified by faith. But listen to what he says. No unbelief made him, Abraham, waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words in Genesis, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord. And then here's the part I want to focus on. Who was delivered up to the cross for our trespasses, He died for our sins, and he was raised for our justification. You cannot separate the cross from the resurrection. 
Jesus was delivered up to death for our trespasses. Our sins put him on the cross. But we are justified. We are declared righteous. We receive righteousness, a right standing before God. We are forgiven for our sins because of the resurrection. Because he was raised from the dead. Because he had power and victory over death. The resurrection is God's word of grace for sinners. It's our confidence that because Christ has life and victory over death, that we do as well. And how do we appropriate this victory? How does it come to us? The instrument of our justification is faith. It's believing in the promises of God. It's throwing all that I am and all that I have on Him and saying, I need this for me. I receive it by faith in him who raised Jesus from the dead. It says it right there in Romans 4.24. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. And all of that is true because we can trust the promises of God. And this is our fourth reverberation. We have confidence, we have victory, we have grace, and we have confirmation. We have confirmation in the promises of God. Look what the angel tells them at the end of verse 7. He says at the beginning, but go tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. The grace will come through the resurrection. The grace that will come through the resurrection has already been promised to Peter. Obviously, Jesus knew he would fail and he promised grace to him. And now the resurrection makes it so that he can receive that grace. And Jesus has predicted all of this. If you go back and read the Gospel of Mark, it's almost amazing that they missed it. I mean, not to cast a shadow on them, but it's everywhere. And on the night of the Passover, Jesus says this to his disciples back in chapter 14, verses 27 and 28. Jesus said to them, you will fall away for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. He told them that this would happen, but that's not the only time. Jesus predicted this over and over again. He tells them, I'm going to die and I'm going to rise from the dead. This is exactly what's going to happen. You remember back in chapter 8, Peter rightly proclaimed Jesus as the Messiah, as the anointed one. And then in chapter 8, you can flip back there with me if you want. I'm going to go through a couple of verses here in chapters 8, 9, and 10. But chapter 8, in verse 29, he tells them, Peter rightly proclaims who he is. Jesus says, that's exactly right. And then in verse 31, Jesus begins after that to start teaching them about what's going to happen. Look at verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And then in the very next chapter, you have the transfiguration where the inner circle sees the glory of Christ Look at chapter 9 and verse 9. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. On their journey to Jerusalem, a second time, Jesus teaches about his coming death and resurrection. Look at chapter 9, verse 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. 
but they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And finally, on the way to Jerusalem, they're almost there, he predicts his death and resurrection again a third time. Chapter 10, verse 32. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And so after Jesus rose from the dead, the angel wanted to remind these women and the disciples about what had been said. And can you imagine being reminded of all of these truths? That Jesus had already predicted these things, and you did. You, now you remembered his words, and it was becoming clearer what was really going on. What would that do to you as a disciple? It would build incredible confidence and incredible trust in the truthfulness of the words of Jesus. He told us these things over and over again, and we've watched it all unfold right before our eyes. We can trust this man. We can believe what he says. But that doesn't only build confidence in those particular predictions, does it? Now you start to think back over everything that he taught you, all of his words, all of his actions, all of his miracles. And if you can trust him on the resurrection, that he would rise from the dead, which is crazy, then obviously you can believe everything else that he said and everything else that he taught. And that works for us as well. I mean, listen, this is the linchpin, right? If you can believe that Jesus rose from the dead, then all the rest of his teaching falls into place and can be relied upon and can be trusted. And then it reverberates out from there because if you can trust what he said, he talked constantly about the Old Testament scriptures. And so you can base your faith on the Old Testament scriptures as well. And it reverberates forward into the New Testament writings that were about him by the very people who saw these things happen and witnessed to them. And so the whole Bible comes together as the very word of God that can be trusted and we can live our lives based on the word of God because Jesus rose from the dead. It all starts with this. And like I said earlier, there's no middle ground here. There's no halfway house. Either he rose from the dead and his word is true, or he didn't. And we are all crazy for being here this morning. That leads us to our last reverberation, amazement. I love how Mark ends this. Notice how the women respond in verse 8. And this is why I say this is such an odd account of the resurrection compared to the other gospel writers. Look at verse 8. They went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now, you can read in your bulletin, there's a little insert there about the last verses that are recorded here, probably in your Bible, verses 9 through 20. You can read about that there. I won't go through uh, what's written there, but I'd be happy to talk with you about that. But I'm convinced that Mark intended his gospel to end right here with verse 8. Again, go read that and let me know if you have any questions. But if that's true, then this really seems like a strange way to end a gospel, doesn't it? 
the women run away afraid. And if that's how Mark intended his gospel to end, then it seems like there's a lot that is left unfinished. So why did Mark do this? Well, there's a couple of reasons that I think Mark, for why Mark ended his gospel account this way. The first one is, when you read this, from a literary standpoint, if you're reading a story, and this is the way the story ends, then you are left with this kind of unfinished sense, aren't you? Like, well, well, well what happened after this? What, how can these women remain silent? I wish they would go out and share this with other people. That's what I want them to do. I want them to speak about what they have seen here. That would seem to be a natural response to what they had just witnessed. And it almost appears like they don't do that, and so you're left with a longing for other people to hear of the resurrection when you read this account. Of course, we know what happens. We know that they do ultimately share it. But I think Mark wants his readers to be left with this sense of the the job not being finished, the task being undone. And as you and I read this, I think our natural and right response should be, I want to go and tell of what has happened here. If a man really came out of the grave and started breathing again, I've got to talk about this. And I've got to tell other people, I don't want to remain silent. So I think that's one reason that Mark ended this way, to compel us to go and share. But there's a second reason, and I think this is the more significant reason for us. I think Mark wants us to end this account of Jesus Christ, his work, and his ministry with amazement and with awe and with astonishment at what we've just read. When you stand next to the reality of the resurrection, that should be a very normal, natural response. Let me think about throughout Scripture. When the presence of the divine shows up, when God breaks into our natural world, the immediate response of people is a sense of awe, astonishment, and fear. It's overwhelming when God shows up. People do not rush into God's presence casually or flippantly. Most of the time, they flee from the presence of God, or they end up falling on their face, unable to look, and trembling in fear. We've already seen this happen in the Gospel of Mark. Mark has this tone to his writing that an encounter with Jesus Christ is an encounter with the divine, and an encounter with the divine is world-shattering for the one who has it. I mean, think back to just two chapters in the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 4, you don't have to flip there, But the story at the end of Mark chapter 4 is the disciples in the boat with Jesus. He's asleep. A storm comes up. He wakes up and says, be silent, stop, and everything ceases. The wind stops. The wave stops. It's as smooth as glass on the surface. And what's the disciples' response to that? They are afraid. They're amazed. What sort of man is this in the boat with us? But then you keep reading, and In Mark chapter 5, at the very beginning, you have this guy who's demon-possessed running around in the tombs, and Jesus casts the demons out, sends them into a herd of pigs. They rush down the cliff into the Sea of Galilee. 
And when the townspeople come up on this scene from their town and they find this guy that they are very familiar with sitting and clothed in his right mind, and it's obvious that some greater power has ordered the demons to come out of him, they are so afraid that they just want Jesus to go away. Get out of here. We cannot handle this. It is too much for us. Right after that, in Mark chapter 5, you have this woman who has been bleeding continuously for 12 years, and she's tried everything that she possibly can to be healed, and she touches Jesus' clothes, and she's instantly made whole, and when Jesus turns around and asks who has done it, she is so scared by what's just happened to her, the obvious encounter with divine power that she falls on her face in front of him and is trembling and afraid. She's so overcome that she collapses in front of Jesus. And that's just two chapters in the Gospel of Mark. Mark is filled with responses of wonder and awe to the working and the power and the presence of God. But here's our challenge today. We live in a time where we almost smirk at those responses, those responses of awe. We've been shaped and grown up in a culture that views the universe as a materialistic, scientific system where we can understand and analyze every single detail. I'm not downplaying the importance of science, but I am saying you can't explain everything that way. Think of how much of our language reflects a view of human beings that you and I are really just glorified machines. We can download things to our brains. We think of ourselves as computers. And so we're not used to the supernatural invading our world, our materialist world. And so when we read about responses like this, it's just so out of the ordinary for us that a response of awe and wonder seems strange and foreign. And if we're honest with ourselves, it seems a little bit backwards. That may have been okay for sort of pre-industrial revolution people. They lived in a different time. But we sort of know better now. We can explain everything. And I think one of Mark's goals in his book here is to leave us with a sense of mystery and awe in the presence of what God has done. And what he's done in the death and resurrection of Jesus, it is an awe-inspiring scene to witness the Son of Man dying on the cross and rising from the dead. And this sense of awe and wonder cannot be forced or manufactured. You can't produce this with fog machines and lasers. This sense of awe and wonder only comes from asking questions like the hymn writer Charles Wesley did. And I'll end with this. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain? For me who him to death pursued? Amazing love, how? How can it be? that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Let's pray. Father, we want to have this sense of wonder at your work. We want to have this sense of awe. 
And we want that sense of wonder that you, Lord Jesus, died for us and you rose for us. We want that to turn into a sense of joy as we go out today. Help us to respond to Mark's ending the appropriate way by taking this sense of awe and wonder and going out and sharing it with others and living as if this were true. Thank you for what you've done. We rejoice in the life that we have received. We love you in Christ's name. Amen.